Welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. Our guest today is none other than Dr. John Gottman, one of the world's leading experts on how to have amazing relationships. In today's episode, we're diving deep with one of the modern day masters of relationship to find out the best ways to argue with your partner, how saying no is actually the quickest path to having more sex, how to know whether to stay or go, and how to make a good relationship great. And we'll talk about much more. Over the past 40 years, John Gottman has authored or co-authored over 40 books and 200 articles on the subject of how to make relationships work. He is famous for being able to predict with over 90% accuracy whether or not a couple can stay together. And he has put the time and research in to finding out just what kinds of interventions can work to help a couple thrive and avoid painful breakups. John has generously offered you a free download of an exercise designed to help you work through conflicts that are seemingly unsolvable. And for those of you listening in the first week of this episode's airing, we also are offering the opportunity to win a signed copy of one of John's books. All the details on how to get the goods are revealed on today's episode. John Gottman, so great to have you here on Relationship Alive. All right, welcome, Neil. Happy to be here. Great. So to get started, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about your approach to working with relationship and trying to figure out what works and what doesn't. And maybe you could contrast that a little bit with other approaches. You don't have to get specific because, you know, we're not looking to trash anyone here. But if you could just talk about maybe the rigor of your work and how you've come to understand what you know about relationships. Sure. I'd be happy to do that. Uh, You know, most of this is based on a lifelong friendship that I have with uh, Bob Levinson, who's a psychology professor at UC Berkeley. And Bob and I uh, have been working together for over 40 years. And 40 years ago, we were just two, two guys, two young professors whose relationships with women were not going very well. <laughs> so <laughs> we were pretty clueless about how to have great relationships. And uh, so we decided uh, to study them. And created this lab where, you know, we were actually just observing couples, how they talked about how their day went, how they dealt with areas of conflict, how they enjoyed themselves. And when I moved to the University of Washington, I built this apartment lab where couples spent 24 hours just hanging out without any instruction at all. And we studied 130 newlywed couples in that lab. So for about 25 years, Bob and I just were studying couples and following them for long periods of time, as long as 20 years, and looking across the whole life course, um, you know, from the beginning of relationships all the way into old age, you know, and our oldest couples are in their 90s now, and looking at gay and lesbian couples who are committed to each other as well, and studying them for a dozen years, and what we found over time was just observing couples, we could really describe some couples as kind of the masters of relationships, which Bob and I weren't. (laughs) When we started off, I'm happy to say that we learned something from the research and we're both in really wonderful relationships now. Um, But it's taken us a long time to really see what is it the masters do that people who really know how to have great relationships and how are they different from the disasters? And you know, are are the masters similar to one another? Are the disasters similar to one another? The answer is yes. And then for the past 20 years, my wife and I have been collaborating. She's a clinical psychologist and so am I. And, you know, sort of using this basic research to build a therapy, a way of avoiding disaster, a way of turning the disasters into masters. And I'm happy to say that we can do that as well. So that's uh, that's kind of what makes our work a little bit different is that we just observed and described, uh, we interviewed couples, we collected physiological data while they talked to each other so we could see what was going on in people's bodies, how fast their blood was flowing, how fast their heart was beating, how much they were sweating, jiggling around, um, 
looking at body temperature and various other things like that. And um, when we first began this research, psychology was kind of in a bad state. And a guy named Walter Michel had written the book saying psychology basically sucked at being able to predict human behavior. So we were pretty surprised that we were able to predict whether a couple would stay together either happily or unhappily or break up with over 90% accuracy across seven different studies. So we had this great level of prediction, but when we started, we really didn't understand the prediction. Um, what was it that really made relationships work? Could we build a theory? And that's what my wife and I did. Built a theory that we call the sound relationship house theory that allows us to really help couples use the prediction research to make a difference. And that's kind of what we're all about. Yeah, I was struck in your book, Principia Amoris, where you talked about how in a lot of couples' work, there have been plenty of theories about what actually works in relationship and, and in fact, whole schools of thought around how to approach particularly problems in relationships. And yet, many of those things which were based on someone's hunch or intuition actually turned out to not be true when you held it up to the scrutiny of observation and collecting data about it. Yeah, right. And all of these, you know, ideas made a lot of sense. They sort of seemed to follow common sense and, you know, and I'm sure, you know, you can find some relationship guru on on television who's, you know, really sort of been self-anointed and proclaimed these principles as being true, but they haven't held up to scientific scrutiny, even though they make sense when you just state them intuitively. I'll give you an example. Like, Great. you know, uh, a lot of people you hear on TV say, lower your expectations. You know, don't expect as much because you're going to be disappointed. Don't have these overblown romantic ideas about relationships being great and having all this potential. If you lower your expectations, you'll never be disappointed. Well, 10 years of research by a professor named uh, Donald Balcom at the University of North Carolina shows that that's totally wrong. You should have high expectations. Have expectations you'll be treated well, and then you get treated well. If you have low expectations, that's what you're going to get. So go into relationships expecting to be treated well with love, affection, kindness, generosity, and that's what you're going to get. So there's an example of where, you know, it seems obvious that this principle is right. It's totally wrong. And I can and give you many, many other examples. Could you give me an example, perhaps, of something that's counterintuitive, where you, you thought for sure this couldn't possibly be true, and then it turned out to actually, you know, something you'd think, oh, common sense would tell you this is horrible in relationship, but it's actually great or better? Sure. Uh, like, like, here's one, you know, uh, just... You know, let it all hang out. Express all your feelings. You know, really, you know, the problem in relationships is people don't really express their feelings and, you know, just say what's on their mind uh, uncensored and especially express your resentment and get it out. So, you know, this was uh, a part of a bestseller called The Intimate Enemy, it's st and it's still in press. And it's a therapy where people take turns saying what they resent about one another. And it turns out from scientific research, if you do that, you wind up more resentful. You've got to channel anger. Not that it's bad. Not that anger is bad. But you've got to really have responsibility as a speaker as well as a, a listener to make a relationship great. So we find that the masters of relationships really soften their startup. They soften the way they start talking about problems. They're considerate. They're kind. You know, they minimize their partner's defensiveness. Not that they hide their anger, but they say, you know, hey, baby, you know, I'm really upset. You know, this here's something that really bothers me. And I'm sure I've got a role in it as much as you do. So like, can we talk about this? And here's what I need, you know, and they express a positive need. So they're very gentle in the way they present things. And so here's something very intuitive. Just express your feelings without censorship. No, that's wrong. You really do need to edit yourself so you're not in attack mode or defensive mode. Makes 
perfect sense to me now that you've explained it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, initially, initially, it seems that what Dr. Bach recommended in The Intimate Enemy is really the answer. But it's only part of the answer. You know, and it's, it, it's true that anger is really not that destructive, but it needs to be gentle. And, you know, sort of a simple thing like kindness and consideration it took us seven years to learn in, you know, very active research that one of the best things you can do in talking about a problem is taking responsibility for even a small part of it so that your partner doesn't feel like it's all her fault or his fault, you know, that you're nailing your partner and talking about this and you're in attack mode uh, just, to, just to have the maximum impact. No, you want to really be gentle. You want to be kind. Right. I, I recall something about the, the phases of conflict where there are these distinct periods when you're actually in conflict about something and you like you don't want to jump too soon into persuading your your partner and can you talk about that a little bit well you know actually neil there you know we discovered that there are three different styles that are all very functional and it depends on you know what feels good to you emotionally some people start persuasion right away you know they're like two lawyers in a courtroom and they go at it and these couples are matched they're both like that and they they love debating they love arguing disagreeing and they're you know they're funny they laugh a lot and they're very gentle with one another but they're tough and they're fine you know if they're matched they're fine because they have this five to one ratio of positive to negative another kind of couple they never persuade they don't engage in persuasion at all they avoid conflict whenever they can and they're very gentle, they explore things, but they never get to the persuasion stage. They say, hey, I can live with this. That's your point of view. I've got a different point of view. I'm fine with that. Well, they're you know, conflict-avoiding couples. They're the opposite of these real engaging couples, and they're fine. If they're matched, they do fine. Their kids are fine. We follow them longitudinally and study their children. And then there's a middle group that, you know, first talks a lot and then engages in persuasion. And we call them validators. And they're fine, too, as long as that ratio of positive to negative during conflict is five to one, then, you know, all three types are fine. It's the mismatched ones that really are, are problematic. One person wants to engage, the other one wants to avoid. That kind of pattern that Andy Christensen at UCLA has called the pursuer distancer problem or the demand withdraw problem. One person wants to talk about it, the other one wants to run away. Then you get problems. This is so rich and was also a really surprising thing when I was reading your book was that the um i think we tend to think of this ideal picture of a of a happy couple as i was reading um the description of a validating couple that seemed like well that's like those are the good couples the people who like listen to each other and they they take turns yeah. with being really considerate and like that's what you want right and well, that's that's really the model of modern therapy is you've got to be that that third type but it's not true you can be you can be the other type you can be you know a type that argues all the time and as long as it doesn't dissolve into bickering and they have that positive to negative ratio that's very high you're fine and you can be a conflict avoider in fact in many ways the conflict avoider Avoiders are the most accepting relationships of all. And, you know, Andy Christensen has talked about how important it is in therapy to accept your partner, to enjoy the differences and not try to change your partner as much as it is to also try to change. You know, so a simplistic view that there's one way to have a relationship, you know, is just not correct. It just doesn't follow the real scientific results. Right, and when you see those couples who seem to be arguing all the time, that in and of itself isn't necessarily an indication that there's anything wrong. That could actually be the spirit of their relationship. Exactly. So can you talk a little bit, there are two things I think related here, and you've mentioned them both in passing already. The first is that five to one ratio. Can you yeah. explain a little bit more about what that means? You know, I'll tell you, it really... Um I don't really understand it, uh, to be honest <laughs> with you. Uh, it just came out empirically in the data. You know, Bob and I just, 
you know, computed the number of seconds that during a conflict discussion where people are disagreeing and they're trying to resolve an issue, how many seconds are they being nice to each other, interested, asking questions, being, you know, affectionate, empathetic, laughing together? You know, all of these positive things have being curious, um, being amused. And then we divide that by the number of seconds they're being hostile and defensive and angry and disappointed and hurt and all of those things. And that ratio of positive to negative turned out to be 0.8 on average for the disaster couples, but 5 to 1 for the master couples. Five times as much positivity, humor, all that kind of stuff than negativity. And that just that just jumped out of the of the data. And, you know, I can't tell you that I understand it. I mean, it really, you know, is surprising. It's just that, you know, in a good relationship, people are instead of saying yes, but to their partner's comment, they're saying, oh, interesting. Well, yeah, you know, uh, and can I add something to that? So it's a yes and attitude rather than a yes, but attitude. And. That's what the masters are doing. They're, they're having conversations, even about conflict, that open the heart and open the mind. And, you know, and then they actually get to a place where they can compromise or resolve the problem or live with the differences. So, and this five to one ratio in terms of the success of a couple holds true even in the case of a volatile couple where they're arguing yep. all the time. Yep. Or Okay. Yep, it's the same ratio for all three types. And, you know, and then when they're just hanging out in the apartment lab or when we videotape them at home, uh, when they're not in conflict, that ratio of positive to negative goes to 20 to 1. So, you know, for a relationship to feel good, it, there's got to be a lot of appreciation, affection, kindness, generosity, and all that kind of stuff, you know, which we call turning toward bids. Because... Neil, what is it that couples really argue about? What, you know, it really turned out that when we study couples in the natural environment, they don't sit down to talk about, you know, in-laws or any other topic. They don't do that. They really, um, they really just, you know, hang out. And then arguments spring out of these failed attempts to connect and be close to one another. That's really what most couples argue about are these failed bids for connection rather than specific topics. So arguments seem to come out of nowhere and be about nothing, but they are about failed bids to connect as friends and lovers. So that means that if, so a, a, a bid might be something totally innocuous. That's not necessarily what you're arguing about. You, uh, uh, One partner says, hey, honey, could you pass the chips? And that, in a, in a way, could be a bid for connection. Absolutely. And, right. and if the person doesn't pass the chips or said, could you get your own chips or I'm really busy right now or whatever it is, then that becomes a failed bid. Is that Exactly, exactly. You know, and, and we see it in the lab all the time. People are making these bids. Sometimes when they're having dinner, there's 200 bids in 10 minutes, you know, and, uh, and a simple bid is trying to get your partner's attention, like saying, you know, looking out the window and saying, oh, you know, what a lovely day. And then the camera turns to the other person and sometimes it's just no response, which we call turning away, you know, like the person is just involved in what they're doing. They don't think this is a very important thing. And sometimes, you know, as you, as your example pointed out, we have turning against rather than turning away. The person is irritable or crabby, like, I'm trying to read, you know, will you be quiet or something like that. Um, we found when we studied 130 newlyweds, the 17 couples out of the 130 that divorced six years after the wedding had turned toward their partner's bids in the apartment lab, 33% of the time, the ones who were still married had turned toward their partner's biz 86% of the time. So a whopping difference in this turning toward bids and has huge implications for therapy. So if you do therapy and you just fix conflict, then the changes won't last. You have to fix friendship and intimacy, 
which is based on these um, this emotional connection toward bids, or the changes do not last. And we've discovered that in two separate studies. So for those of you listening at home, it might be good to start examining your interactions with your partner, whether they be the things that you do that are essentially a bid for connection or the things that your partner is doing. And and then just notice how you respond to it. Are you, are you a yes to that um, attempt at connection or do you dismiss it or do you ignore it basically? Yeah. And turning toward bids, you know, you don't have to be a, you know, mental health worker to do that. It's just really being mindful that your partner expresses needs often in very indirect ways, you know, like, uh, can you pass the chips or, you know, hey, there, I, there's an interesting thing in the newspaper about, you know, you know, this uh, terrorist group in England. And, you know, then the partner goes, oh, really? Tell me about it. Or, what, what's going on? Or somebody says, OK, listen, there's four lawyers in a boat, you know, so they're going to tell a joke and you can see the readiness to laugh in the partner's face. And those are all very small bids that people make. So our motto is small things often. Turn toward these bids and all of all of what you do in connecting this way, even in these small moments, is really foreplay. <laughs> I like that. And it also is building what you refer to as the the positive emotional bank account, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's a cushion. <laughs> so, so can you can, talk about that in terms of because you also mentioned startup earlier and I think that's sort of a technical term but it turns out to be really important in terms of seeing the the outcomes of conflict amongst these arguing styles, right? That's right. So, you know, in terms of startup, when we look at a conflict discussion, you know, the way people start in the first three minutes of the discussion predicts 96% of the time how the whole discussion is going to go. And startup also predicts the entire relationship. So the way you begin is really critical. And a lot of that is also related to people's individual personality, the individual factors their happiness, their tendency to ruminate about negative things. Um, so that's where individual factors also have a big impact on the relationship. And this emotional bank account is something you can really build. You can make deposits. You can say, thanks for making the coffee. You know, I really enjoyed the conversation at dinner. Wow, you really look hot in that outfit. I'm having all these lewd thoughts about you right now. Come here. You know? And <laughs> these little things you know, build this emotional bank account. They, they create romance. They, they grease the wheels of affection and intimacy and lovemaking. And they make the relationship you know, connected, uh, playful, adventurous, exciting, uh, and, and safe and comfortable. So they create a safe haven in the relationship, too. And so that's why you've got to look at friendship and intimacy as well as conflict. And part of friendship and intimacy and also conflict, we discovered, and that's one way in which our research is a little bit different, is that we are very existentially oriented because, you know, as a species, we're very unique. We are, we're meaning makers. We're storytellers. And if you really are sharing these stories, if you know what's going on in your partner's mind and heart, and you have those kinds of conversations where you're creating a sense of meaning and purpose together as you build a life together, then that intimacy becomes very strong and very deep. How would you characterize the different phases of relationship and what that means in terms of actually preserving passion and intimacy over the over the lifespan of a relationship well i'm glad you asked that question because i think that's one thing that we've discovered that i think is really pretty wonderful because there really are three phases of love in a lifetime of love and we know a lot about the first phase the falling in love phase in those societies where people choose partners rather than having marriages arranged uh, by convention, there's a falling in love phase, which is very selective. Only the right person who smells right, tastes right, feels right in your arms, looks right, can really stimulate and give rise to this cascade of hormones and neurotransmitters that 
each of which is kind of like the facet of a diamond in falling in love. You know, the excitement, the obsession, you know, the, the, the real concern with one another, the kindness, the lust, you know, the passion, the comfort, the idea that this is a home that you've never had before, this idea that it's easy to relate. Uh, the time passes quickly. This is the falling in love phase. And there's at least a dozen hormones and neurotransmitters involved in this cascade. It's very selective. And that's the first phase. But we also know one of those hormones is oxytocin, the hormone of bonding. It also is the hormone of very bad judgment. <laughs> so that, you know, it really diminishes the fear center, the amygdala, calms it down. And a lot of times in this falling in love phase, people don't see the red flags that are there that are going to be problems in the relationship later on. The second phase is about building a safe haven. Building trust is what that's about. And a lot of times when people really make a commitment and move in together or they get married or you know something like that, that um, is a major step forward, they have a bit of buyer's remorse. The oxytocin, haze fades and now the things that attracted them to one another may even become sources of irritability well they argue that in the most argument we know happens in the first two years of a new relationship after this commitment step well all those arguments are about can i trust you will you be there for me do you have my back will you be there for me when i'm horny when i'm lonely when i'm angry with you when i'm disappointed Am I more important than your mother, than your friends? What if I really need you? Will you be faithful to me? Will you be emotionally faithful, sexually faithful? Um, you know, do I really come first? You know, are those wedding vows, you know, really true? And all the arguments are about violations of that. Can I trust you? And the second phase is just as selective as the first phase. And you can only build trust with certain people. Once you build trust and you have a safe haven, people then move on to a bigger commitment. For example, it determines whether they decide to get pregnant or not and have a baby. And, you know, and it can decide other things, other ways, like buying a house together, merging their finances. There's a third phase. And that phase is really the phase where you build loyalty, commitment, and true romantic passion where romance is about cherishing this person above all others. And when that happens, there's a third phase of romance where being in love lasts a lifetime. And, you know, a lot of times we hear, you know, clinicians say, well, you know, my, my clients say, you know, I love my wife, but I'm not in love with my wife. Well, you can be in love with your partner for a lifetime if you go through this third phase of cherishing in which you're really maximizing your partner's positive qualities and minimizing their negative qualities and trying to get your needs met in the relationship rather than building betrayal where you're really substituting for what's missing in the relationship and you're magnifying resentment for what you don't have instead of gratitude for what you do have. And that third phase lasts a lifetime. One thing that stuck out at me in your book was your discussion about sex and how game theory applies to the uh, the ability for one partner or the other to be able to say no and how That's the right. permission to say no uh, has a direct effect on the amount of sex that a couple is having. Can you discuss that a little bit? Yeah, you can prove mathematically that, you know, there there. Currently, people, you know, writing books like The Sex Starved Marriage, you know, and, you know, The Sexless Marriage and so on, you know, what, and, you know, drug companies are trying to find a female Viagra or, you know, some aphrodisiac that turns people on, you know, especially women on, you know, and you can prove mathematically that couples will have a lot of sex if it's okay to say no, if, you know, if, uh, for example, when a woman says no, we know that when she gives birth and, or she's nursing especially, that her libido decreases. If he meets her no 
with, okay, so I'm glad you told me you're not in the mood to make love right now. Uh, what, what are you in the mood for? You want to watch a movie, take a walk? Uh, do you need to be alone? Do you need me to take care of the baby? Uh, what can we do together if you want to be together that would feel good? That couple's going to have a lot of sex. Whereas if he responds, you know, we know, you know, during this phase that men want sex six times more often than women do. And think about it, six times more often than women do after a, after a baby, if she's nursing, then uh, if, he's, if he is hurt by her saying no and he, he punishes her in any way, he says, okay, you know, so, you know, like one guy who posted all the times his wife said no on the Internet, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and humiliated her. Well, they're not going to have sex, and you can prove this mathematically with with this branch of mathematics called game theory. So the payoff has to be, for saying no, actually has to be positive, even if it's slightly positive, even if the, the guy or the woman, you know, when he says no, says, okay, well, I'm glad you told me you're not in the mood. So what do you want to do, you know? Uh, what should we do tonight? Do you have strategies for building the the positive, uh, you know, a positive response? Because it seems like you could be understanding, but like, how do you make for a really big payoff for saying no without it becoming detrimental? I don't think it ever becomes detrimental. I, you know, I think you want to, you want to also have a way of saying yes. You know, you want to want to have a clear way of initiating sex. And, you know, it's interesting that most, most couples in our culture don't have a ritual for initiating sex, except for Latino and Hispanic couples. And American, Hispanic, and Latino couples really do emphasize, you know, knowing what turns your partner on. So we have this app that you can buy in the, in the app store, either for an iPhone or you can also get it for, you know, for the other kinds of phones, the smartphones, uh, which is about creating a love map of your partner's erotic world, asking those questions like, you know, knowing what turns your partner on and what turns your partner off and continuing to really investigate that and finding a way of connecting. So it's not just not punishing your partner for saying no, it's having a way of continuing romance and passion and sexuality, making it a priority. Sometimes that means quickie sex. You know, sometimes it means gourmet sex. Sometimes it means helping your partner masturbate. Sometimes, you know, it means accepting masturbation. Um, but not internet pornography, because that actually decreases libido for sexual connection and decreases the amount of sex people have with their partner. So... Pornography is really, and the internet is harmful rather than helpful, unless the we, couple is doing it together. We did have Gary Wilson on the show who wrote Your Brain on Porn, and he prevented, uh, presented a very convincing argument for how detrimental uh, internet porn can be to sexual health and to people's sex lives together as a couple. Um, and one thing that's really interesting to me about that, that game theory thing and having permission to say no is, I mean, you hear about that all the time when you're dealing with couples where one or the other or both have experienced some form of sexual trauma. And in that sense, it, it makes perfect sense. Like, oh yeah, if, if, a, if a partner has been traumatized, then you don't want to re-trigger them by, for some reason, having them feel like it's not okay to, to say no to yeah. being intimate. And so it was fascinating to me that that's actually true for everyone. Yeah, good point. It is fascinating. And, you know, uh, one of the findings in, you know, the American sex study that was so interesting was that uh, people who are in committed relationships have more sex and, uh, and they masturbate more also, but they don't do Internet porn. So masturbation generally is about fantasizing about making love with your partner or, you know, some kind of fantasy variant of that. But Internet porn is very different because you can plug in anybody. It's not your partner. It's like, you're, you know, it's so impersonal, really. And so it's facilitating uh, the release of oxytocin to images in which you have control. And there's no real communication. And that's what makes lovemaking work is communication in the bedroom. Right. Uh, what would you what would you say in terms of people who have 
who think that they have a good relationship, but what, how could they know? Well, two things. One is, how would they know what to do to make it great? So how do you go from good to great? And then the other <laughs> is, let's say you're good, but there's this like nagging suspicion you have that like actually something is is horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. And is there any way to to know conclusively, oh, actually, we're totally neglecting this thing in and and that would be a way to to actually truly be in a healthy relationship um and or vice versa they figure out actually we're 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 in pretty good shape but we mm-hmm. need this extra boost to to be amazing yeah i you know i think uh you can boil it down to one thing and here's the one thing in a great relationship it's as if people have the motto when you're hurting baby the world stops and i listen even if you're mad at me, even if you're disappointed in me, the world stops and I listen and I go, okay, talk to me, baby. I want to hear what you're feeling and I want to know what your needs are. And in a, in a bad relationship, people have, it's as if they have the motto, you know, when you're upset, when you're angry, when you're disappointed, when you're hurt, when you're sad, you know, go away. I don't want to deal with your emotions. You know, I want to deal with a happy, positive person. So, you know, screw you. If you're upset, you know, you're on your own. And life goes on and they neglect, you know, these needs that their partner has. It's really that simple. And, you know, it's about attunement. It's, and that's, and it, and of course it's hard. It's hard when your partner's mad at you or disappointed in you to say, talk to me, baby. I'm listening. I'm taking notes, you know, because it's going to be on the test. What do you need? What do you feel? It's really as simple as that. So if you feel like you really can't talk to your partner, you know, when you're sad, when you're upset, you know, you're going to be blamed or your partner's going to take it personally and, you know, your partner's not really your friend, not there for you, then you're in serious trouble in that relationship. And, you know, the real test is can you talk to your partner even in those you know, really sour moments, you know, where you're not happy, where you're upset. Um, is your partner there for you? It's really that simple, I think. You know that that's that's what it boils down to. So that brings up two questions for me. The first is yeah. hearing that makes me think of that the conflict avoiders and mm-hmm. like that in a in a conflict avoiding relationship, which which earlier we had talked about was actually potentially a really good relationship, even though it's conflict avoiding that the people in that relationship might feel like I can't really talk to my partner because they're avoiding conflict. Well, actually that's, that's really actually not true because conflict avoiders are great listeners. They just don't engage in persuasion. So, you know, they talk about emotions. Now, you know, some conflict avoiders are not very expressive. Neither one of them is that emotionally expressive, you know, but you know, they can say something like, you know, God, that, that hurt my feelings. And the partner can say, oh, yeah, that really sucked. I'm sorry. How about a piece of cheesecake? And they say, oh, yeah, that'd be nice. And then they have some cheesecake, you know, and they sit and they say, okay, so, um, you know, that, that, was, that was kind of a bad area. You know, I wandered into a bad area. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sensitive about that. So they're, they're connecting emotionally, but they're not really – going the next step and saying, okay, so what's the solution? They're just saying, okay, let's leave that area. It's very sensitive. So they're, they're okay as listeners. They just don't engage in persuasion. That's, that's what's hard for them. Got it. And they're, they have this don't tread on me kind of model of maintaining independence and strength as individuals and not treading on each other's territory. But they, they're good talkers, and they're, they're probably the most accepting of all relationships um, in a way. So they are connecting emotionally. They are building that emotional bank account, and they do have that motto of, you know, when you hurt, baby, I'm, you know, the world stops and I listen to you. So the question, the second question, it was around what what is the power of one person? So ideally... a a couple is listening to our conversation together, 
But let's say yeah. there's one person listening to this conversation and they're like, yeah, I like my partner never is saying, hey, baby, what's wrong with you? The world has stopped, you know, like, so what is what is right. that one? What are the, some of the um, the key things that someone acting on their own can do that actually have a great effect on their relationship? Well, um, you know, it's interesting because, of course, the, you know, the best way to change a relationship is if both people are willing to really look at the relationship and look at their own roles in it. But failing that, the individual can do a great deal. Like, for example, um, you can really change startup um, by changing your own mindfulness. So research has shown by Richie Davidson and, Ka and John Kabat-Zinn uh, that if you work on mindful meditation, you know, and here I'm talking about compassionate meditation, not meditation where you try to not have all thoughts and you try to not, you know, think about your body, but where you're tuning into your body to your sensations and you're thinking about um, increasing how compassionate you are. Research has shown that you can move from right frontal dominance to left frontal dominance. And this is part of Richie Davidson's research with right frontal dominance people as individuals tend to ruminate on negative things that get them to withdraw from the world. Whereas with left frontal dominance, they, they're more likely to engage in the world with curiosity, interest, uh, amusement, and also anger, engage with anger. But they're, they're really more engaging and they can be more gentle. They can have more of a sense of humor and they can change this positive startup dimension now part of the positive startup dimension you know is the relationship and part of it is the individual so if you can't work on the relationship you can at least work on yourself so you're not always ruminating on negative things another thing is the ability to sustain positive emotion so positive emotion has a shorter half-life than negative emotion it doesn't last as long it's not as powerful but enhancing agreeability is an important thing. This attitude of saying, yeah, yes, you know, yes and rather than yes but. And uh, one of the things we discovered, and this is really the research of, of Robinson and Price, that when you're unhappy in a relationship, you don't notice 50% of the positive things your partner does for you. So enhancing this idea, catching your partner doing something right, you know, and seeing that, you know, at least part of that 50% and saying thank you, building that culture of appreciation can be very, very important. And, you know, the other thing that's important as an individual is really learning the skills of intimate conversation and the skills of dealing with conflict. So uh, those are skills that you can learn, you know, in any relationship. You can learn to ask open-ended questions. You can learn to not be judgmental and critical. You can learn to avoid what we call the four horsemen of the apocalypse that really, you know, spell the end of good relationships. So as an individual, you can change. And this mindful, compassionate meditation is the beginning of that change. Um, and learning social skills that really get you to notice and be grateful for what you have rather than resentful for what you're missing can wind up affecting the relationship. Now, you know, I don't know how much it'll affect the relationship because all of our experiments are on intervening with couples rather than individuals. I think it can have an effect. Um, and, you know, Richie Davidson has written about this in his book on, um, on your emotional brain. And talking about these individual uh, emotional styles is what he calls them. And there is something, you know, people can really work on themselves to be more receptive, less judgmental, less critical, have gentler startup, to emphasize kindness and generosity and cherishing their partner rather than building resentment and alienation. So those are individual things that people can do. And especially learning the skills of intimate conversation are very important there. So this is a good place to interject that your books have amazing 
exercises in them that people can do alone together to build love maps with their partner, to learn how to engage in conflict in a constructive way, to repair after um, something horrible has happened. And I, I want to take a moment before we close to talk about repair. But before I do, I wanted to just mention a couple things for our listeners. The first is that you can find out all kinds of information about Dr. John Gottman and his work uh, along with his wife at the Gottman Institute. They're based out of Seattle. And their website is www.gottman, that's G-O-T-T-M-A-N.com. They offer workshops for couples called the Art and Science of Love. They do them, I think you do them yourselves in Seattle, right? And then they're offered- Yeah, Great. And then they're also offered all over the world by people who are certified by the Gottmans to do this work. So, um, right. so great opportunities for you to get do some skill building in person and affect huge change in your relationship. The other thing I wanted to mention is, as always, I will have a guide together for this episode. And you'll be able to download that um, as, and as well as see the show notes for this episode if you go to neilsatin.com slash Gottman, G-O-T-T-M-A-N. And uh, so you'll be able to see the show notes, get the guide. And our guide, we're going to have a couple things that um, John has been kind enough to allow us to reprint um, that will not only talk about what we mentioned in this conversation, but some really helpful pointers for you to learn how to get more um, more intimate and more close with your partner in terms of building that friendship and that fondness for each other. So we're going to have that available for you. And the last thing that I want to mention is that John has also been kind enough to offer a free copy of his book to a lucky listener. Um, the book, What Makes Love Last, How to Build Trust and Avoid Betrayal. And so to qualify for that, you simply need to either download the guide for this episode within a week after this episode's having aired. The guide will be there forever, but if you download it within a week or you text the word PASSION, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444, again, within a week after this episode is aired. You just follow the instructions there. That will qualify you for potentially the giveaway, and you'll be able to download the guide to this episode. And we'll also have links back to John's site um, and other things that we've mentioned as resources for you. So thanks, John, for for. Uh, offering such a bounty of material for our listeners to help them out in their relationships. Yeah, that's our goal. I, you know, we even have eleven uh, apps um, for relationships. Very inexpensive apps like open-ended questions and love maps and erotic love maps and things like that um, that are available. Um, I was so curious. I noticed we in, want to help in Principia. You also have uh, some. Uh, some math to help people decide if they should break up. Is Do you have an app for that yet? <laughs> no, we don't. But, you know, there's a, there's a very simple guide uh, that you can use, you know, when to bail out of a bad relationship, which mm -hmm. is really very simple idea, but we can actually quantify it, which is, you know, what do you like, first of all? What, you know, what's your personality like? And what do you like when you're with your partner? If you compare those two things, how does your partner influence you? And if your partner, you know, moves you to a more negative place uh, and you're likely to be more negative when you're, you know, when you're with this person, then that's a very bad sign. And you really want to bail out of relationships that do that to you and be in relationships and select those relationships that make you a kinder, more generous person, more compassionate person um, that bring out the best in you. Um, your playfulness, your your adventuresomeness, you know, your sense of humor. When that's happening, you know, when you know when you're better at home than you are alone, you're in a great relationship. And when it's not happening, it's a good indicator that you should consider bailing out. So before everyone at home bails. Um, or, you know, 66% <laughs> of them bail. Um, let's take a moment and just talk about repair. 
And sure. it's important because a lot of people, maybe they're in a troubled place in their relationship and they're saying, you know what? Like when I go home, I don't, I'm not at my best and maybe I should bail given what right. John just said. So how do they know if they should bail versus what can they do to actually rebuild? Well, it's, um, you know, it's, it's really possible to change a relationship. And, you know, even reading the Seven Principles book, we found in a randomized clinical trial changes the relationship dramatically if you do the exercises with no therapist uh, at all. Just doing those exercises together and reading the book together changes the relationship and it stays changed a year later. That's as long as we've done follow-up. So, you know, you really can change a relationship. We get three times the effect size when we try to prevent problems than when we, you know, intervene when problems have already developed. And part of the problem is that people wait too long to get help. Uh, we found, you know, it was really Cliff Notarius at, at Catholic University who found that people wait an average of six years to get any kind of help once they discover there's a problem in the relationship. So get help early and, uh, and find somebody who really is competent to help you. And, you know, you can tell if somebody is well-trained and competent. You know, the, uh, the consumer really is the one who needs to judge whether this therapy is just rehashing negative things and it's a place where you come to be angry and mean to each other or whether it's a place where you really are healing the relationship and things are getting better and better over time. You can judge that. And so find a really good therapist, a really competent therapist. And, uh, and we can make a big difference in changing relationships. So you can find someone who is certified by the Gottmans on their website as well, Gottman.com. Right. Or Susan Johnson's uh, Emotionally Focused Therapy also has very good evidence of success. And behavioral marital therapy, which is a third kind of therapy, also has shown that it's very effective. So even, you know, even with addiction and other kinds of problems that go along sometimes with, with marital problems, uh, domestic violence, we can make a difference. We can really help people even with problems like, you know, like depression and other kinds of individual problems in addition to couples problems. We know how to make a difference now. There are effective therapies out there, uh, but there aren't a lot of clinicians who are well-trained. So find somebody who's really well-trained. So if someone is reads your book or is already familiar with their work with your work and they recognize the four horsemen of the apocalypse, like, whoa, those things are happening. My, my wife is stonewalling me. My husband is full of contempt. Whatever it is, there's actually still hope for them, even though those horsemen have appeared on the horizon? Absolutely. Yeah, we can really turn things around. Um, you know, is we there have a, a form of therapy. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah I was just going to ask, like, is there, is there a step one that someone listening to this, to this could take? Absolutely, there is a step one. You know, if you go to our website, you know, we have um, ways, we have products that are helpful that are fairly inexpensive. If you can't come to Seattle or you can't do the art and science of love workshop, you can buy it. You know, we have videotaped it. We have all the exercises. You can do it at home. Uh, we've shown that that's effective as well. Sometimes you'll find that using these tools, it doesn't really, it's not really cutting it for you if you do it at home. And then you need a therapist. So the first step is, you know, maybe try some of these things, you know, at home on your own. And that may be adequate. A third of the couples that I see in my private practice, they really just want the conflict to end and be more constructive, not destructive, but bring them closer together when they talk about an issue. That's pretty easy to fix. And if that's the problem, you know, one of these tools can help. But if there are other issues, you know, if, you know, really it's about romance and friendship and connection and passion, you know, and there are other other individual issues like addiction or there's domestic violence or there's, you know, depression going on or bipolar disorder, a therapist is really going to be needed and it's going to be help very helpful in using these tools and helping you turn things around. The average 
length of time, you know, uh, is around a dozen sessions. It doesn't have to cost a lot of money. And, uh, you know, I'd say reach out and get help. We know that less than 25% of people who divorce in the United States, there are 900,000 divorces a year in the United States. Less than a quarter of them ever talk to anybody, a professional, even a minister, about their problems. So that's, that's what I would recommend as a first step. Reach out. Great. Well, John, thank you so much for your time today. I have one more quick question for you, and then I'll, I'll let you go. Um, when we went through those conflict styles, we talked about validators. We talked about conflict avoiders. We talked about um, volatile um, style. And you said that when people are matched, that all is well. So I inferred from that that when people aren't matched, that could be a source of problems. Can someone make a shift if they notice like, ooh, like my style is validating and my partner's style is conflict avoiding? What can someone like that do? Well, you know, in that case, you have a perpetual problem in the relationship and they can really find a style that accommodates both people's needs. And, you know, there I would suggest that a therapist will be necessary. You know, for some of these mismatches, um, like one person, you know, especially one person wants to talk about feelings and the other one hates to talk about feelings, a therapist can be very helpful in dealing with a perpetual problem like that and finding an accommodation where both people really are accepting their partner style and the person who wants to talk about conflict is much gentler in the persuasion part and compared to the the person who's the avoider who really you know finds persuasion really very very difficult and physiologically arousing so i think uh it is eminently treatable uh these mismatches really just become perpetual problems and there is no relationship without perpetual unsolvable problems so and that's where that, that yeah. the dreams within conflict exercise that you talk about is that Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I think we're probably the only uh, therapy program that says that some conflicts really feel like deal breakers. And they turn out to also be the greatest potential sources for intimacy. And that's because each person's position has very deep meaning to them. And there's a dream within their position that's not getting talked about. And so our dreams within conflict approach that uh, my wife, Julie Gottman, and I came up with really winds up working 86% of the time in helping people move within, you know, within a, a workshop you know, where there's not a therapist really. Uh, just on their own, 86% of the time, they can really come to an understanding of this conflict and make a breakthrough. And, uh, you know, that's why we, we think it's very important to think about not just the conflict, but what, it, what your position means to you, what its history is, what the story behind that is for you. And then turns out that the worst conflicts become the greatest sources of connection and intimacy. Wow. Well, and we know that when you say it works 86% of the time that you've validated that in <laughs> clinical studies and right. you can speak that number with authority. Right. Well, thanks again, John, for being on today's show. Just for everyone to remind everyone, if you want to find out more information about Dr. John Gottman and his work, you can visit Gottman, G-O-T-T-M-A-N dot com. And we will have a guide and resources. Um, maybe we'll we'll talk about at least something to point you to that Dreams Within Conflict exercise as well. Um, that will all be available in the show notes, which you can find at neilsatin.com slash Gottman. Or you can just text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions there. That will get you there as well. So thanks again so much for your time today, John, and for your wisdom and for your work for um, so long in helping us in the States and all across the, the world having uh, to have much, much better relationships. My pleasure. All right. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. 
If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive Community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word passion, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.